with these guys here. Welcome everybody to class number five mm-hmm. of rationalism versus mysticism. So just to give a brief recap, we left off last week. Uh, we were discussing a lot of bit, a lot about Jonathan Haidt and his idea. Wow, we got the Benins here. Now we have everything we need. That's really it. This is amazing. Um, so last week we discussed some of the work of David Hume, one of the uh, eminent, preeminent uh, psychologists, uh, sorry, philosophers of the previous centuries. Um, and he has this very interesting idea um, he says, without question, the essay that has stayed with me the longest is William James's The Will to Believe. James' argument was that our passional nature uh, not only lawfully may, but must decide an option between propositions whenever it is a genuine option that cannot by its nature be decided on intellectual grounds. Basically, what he's saying in short is that we can't only rely on our intellects. We need to rely on intuition. We need to be able to rely not just on the way we think about things with our left brain. We need to also sometimes with the most important things, rely on a gut feeling. Um, and that was building off of a lot of the work of uh, what we mentioned about Jonathan Haidt. This is from Dr. Schatz from YU. And then we mentioned Harambam. What a beautiful thing in, in Hilchot Teshuvah. He says that a person, what is the correct form of love? A love that a person has for Kadosh Baruch Hu is, is unbelievable leaps and bounds, like a person loves their wife. And, you know, it's something that they can't stop thinking about. And we see Hanambam himself, even though a lot of people think he's a rationalist, he has this, uh, at least understanding that the highest level is a feeling, is an intuition, is an experience of God. And that's what it means, Lada'atet Hashem. Um, and he, he mentions, of course, what it says in Shira Shirim, um, right? It says, so let me just read it uh, through. What's the correct and fitting type of love? Very strong. And look how much he's emphasizing this. Your, your nefesh, your life force is, is bound up in the love of God. This is from Hanambam, where everyone says it's such a rationalist. You're always thinking about God. Just like you're thinking about your wife that you love so much, you're thinking about Hashem all the time. And that's what it means to love God with all your heart and all your soul. What Shalom says in the way of a metaphor, I am lovesick. Of course, all of Shira Shirim is a mashal, is an analogy to this idea. So that's from Milchot Teshuvah. Hanambam is so effusive about this idea, and it's so powerful to us because we see that this, you know, king of all the rationalists, has such a, a spot to him that is relying on emotion in the relationship with God. So anybody who tells you it's only philosophical knowledge of God that Hanabam believes in, that's not true. It's also this level, and you have to take Hanabam in the totality of who he is. Um, the next thing just uh, that you guys can see on the screen, I'll read it to you guys, is from Morene Bukhim. He says, what then should be the state of our intellects when they aspire to apprehend him who is without matter and is simple to the utmost degree of simplicity. So our intellects, which are so limited, how could they possibly understand God who is so simple 
he's the simplest of all the simples, meaning he's so one that we can't even understand what one means about God because it's this oneness that's ineffable. Him whose existence is necessary, him who has, who has no cause and no motion attaches that is superadded to his essence, which is perfect. So basically, he's, he has this humility to recognize the limits of our intellect. And to me, that's one of the idols of the age of today is that we've gone so astray after the intellect. We're relying so much on our brains that we, we forgot to, to integrate the elephant inside of us. What we mentioned last week from Jonathan Haidt. Um, and I wrote here to Rabbi Shalom Karmi. So my good friend a few years ago actually recommended to me a pamphlet from this rabbi from YU. And he said that this rabbi really captures so beautifully and so well um, a response to modern day atheism. And we mentioned it in previous classes, but I'll, I'll reframe it. He says as follows. He says, you know, the student of his told him, I just became orthoprax. I want to do orthodoxy because it's convenient for me in my community, but I don't want to believe in anything about God. I'm a, I'm a complete atheist. And Rabbi Carmi's answer was so nuanced and so thoughtful that I, I said, it's great to share. I wish I could quote it for you, but I don't have the pamphlet anymore. But in a, in a nutshell, he's, this is, I, I forgot the name of it. I could, I'll could find out for you. I'll try to remember. Uh, I'll ask uh, Raymond Cohen, who actually recommended it to me, Rayco. Um, uh, he's going to kill me for saying his name in the recording, but hopefully he doesn't find out, Jojo. Don't tell him anything. <laughs> and then, um, so, so it's amazing that Rabbi Shalom Karmi is able, first of all, to respond to such an intellectual person like this student. What does he say? He says the brain evolved. We could both agree on that, that this brain of yours is a product of whatever form of evolution. Now, what you're using right now, which is your intellect, is one of those things that evolved. But you want to only use the intellect as a means for truth. And you want to reject intuition and emotion and all that stuff, which tells you that there is something more than just this idea of, you know, the nothingness of everything or that it's all just here by accident. Or there are experiences that we have where we feel larger than ourselves, like we mentioned from Jonathan Haidt. And those are the experiences where you tap into the mystical. We tap into real happiness because you feel larger than yourself. And we mentioned different ways of doing that, whether that be what they're doing modern day psychiatry with psychedelics, whether that be an experience with a, a bunch of people uh, in a marching group, you know, in, in, in the army, whether that be going out into nature and seeing an unbelievable vista and losing yourself in the totality and the grandeur at all, or looking at space and having that same experience. And, you know, we mentioned that, that experiment of the people who uh, saw somebody dropping all their pens. And if they, if they looked at a beautiful tree beforehand, they were more likely to help the guy pick up his pens than if they looked at a building because the tree made them feel larger than themselves. And it forced them to recognize the other and extend outwards from just their limited ego. So these are amazing, amazing things. So Rabbi Shalom Karmi says, given that we have this experience and you atheists want to reject this on the basis of the intellect alone, it makes no sense. Literally, logically, it makes no sense. I'll use your own tool against you. Because if the brain evolved, it evolved as a package deal. And don't think that you can accept one part and reject another. The brain as a totality is important. And therefore, you need to be able to accept all parts of it as valid means towards truth. Because in the first place, the brain didn't evolve for truth in the Greek sense or whatever sense you might want to think about it. The brain evolved to help you outcompete other people. It evolved to, to help the human species outcompete other species. 
And that's the whole reason. So you need to be able, even from a biological standpoint, even from an intellectual standpoint, you have to acknowledge the validity of the intuition. I thought that was extremely profound. Now, before we move on, I want to open to any comments or questions. And then I'm going to read you something from Alan Watts because, you know, why not? And I, I, I can't go one class without doing that. So any on Zoom in person, anybody have questions or comments? Yeah. Alan Watts. Oh, uh oh. <laughs> oh, you just opened up a can of worms. Ask Meyer who Alan Watts is. <laughs> He'll tell you all about how much I love him. I don't stop talking about him. He's, he's an Eastern philosopher, but he, he doesn't, he kind of transcends all these labels. He has this funny joke. He says, you know, when you're filling out um, one of those forms at the DMV or something, and like it says, you know, uh, sex, and you say, um, yes, please, or something like that. You know, he says, we should, we should do the same thing when it says religion. We shouldn't say what religion we are. He says we should say yes, meaning you're a person who just loves learning about religion. And you don't, he, he himself was this person who kind of transcended all the labels of any of this stuff. He just was such a profound thinker. And a lot of his stuff really leads me towards this mystical experience, just listening to it. I, I, I'll, I challenge any one of you, walk on Coney Island Boardwalk and listen to Alan Watts for an hour at night by yourself and tell me that you didn't have an unbelievable experience. Tell me you had a bad time. I'll give you a few dollars to <laughs> next time I see you. Just uh, try that out. So I'll read you uh, something that he says that is, that is really uh, one of my favorite um, you know, pieces of his. I know Jojo read a little bit of him. The existence of the physical universe is basically playful. There is no necessity... Uh, for it whatsoever it isn't going anywhere that is to say it doesn't have some destination that it ought to arrive at now immediately you might react to this and say oh that offends my jewish sensibilities we know that in judaism there was this unbelievable revolution about what time means in the ancient world they believe time is cyclical it's just this wheel of rep repetitive stuff and everything just keeps repeating and repeating and there's no progress Judaism invented this idea, a revolutionary idea of progress, that time is not cyclical, it's linear. This is from Rabbi Labaton, Allah Shalom. And that because time is linear, there's always this opportunity for progress. There's always this opportunity to continue to grow. So I don't deny that. And we mentioned, uh, you know, I mentioned that Shabbat, the, the, the value of understanding paradox, that mystical people are those people who are able to live with paradox, just like an electron is both a particle and a wave at the same time. The mystics throughout the ages have spoken about the mystical experience and about the ineffable experience from two sides of their mouth. And they say both are true at the same time. So does life matter? Well, yes, it matters like crazy to help relieve suffering, but does it matter? Well, no, it doesn't really matter. It's not like, was there, is there anything so important that needs to be done? No, life is valuable for its own sake. Is there a meaning to life? Well, in the sense that the meaning is that there is no external meaning, then yes, there is a meaning, but that's paradox. So it's impossible to actually state something positive about the world that will be absolutely true. So I want you to suspend any disbelief you have and just let his words take you, because even though he's saying that there is this not necessarily a goal for everything, that doesn't mean that on the one hand, there is a goal and a storyline we tell. But on the, other hand, on the other hand, it doesn't need to, need to be a storyline or a goal. It could just be, in this moment, valuable for its own sake. So listen to both of these ideas at once. Mike. Yes. Sorry, ID. No, no. So to two things. Is mysticism and, cap what's mysticism and, ca and capitalism? 
Are they synonymous or are they? Yeah, so, yes, uh, basically, Kabbalah is definitely within the category of Jewish mysticism. Um, and hopefully, in the next few classes, I'm going to be educating myself more. I bought a couple of books about Kabbalah to learn more about what Jewish mysticism really is drawing upon and the history of it and where it came from. Right, but in this in this forum now, you're you're an advocate of it. Yeah, my opinion is that there's nothing wrong with learning things in a responsible way, and you know, as long as you're taking all different opinions into account, and as long as you're being receptive to both rationalism and mysticism, right. I think then you're really a complete person. But if you're right. if you label yourself as only one thing or only another right. thing. I think you're denying a part of the human experience. Just like we said, the human brain has the capacity for the limbic system to have these emotions, but also the intellect to have these, you know, these these intellectual experiences. Right, but the Rambam wasn't was not a fan, correct? Of, of so the Rambam never studied Kabbalah, probably because it just really wasn't popular in his time. But ah. You know, like it didn't really exist. I think the the uh, the Zohar wasn't even written fully by by Moshe de Leon until like the 14th century. Right. So it was like a while after Hanabam. Then maybe there were kernels. Now, of... there, there were other mystical works, and there are other Mefarshim that espouse mystical beliefs. So I wouldn't say that there was no access to mystical tradition at Rambam's time. He just wasn't a mystic. Yes, that's what I'm sure. Trying to understand. Definitely, and and. I think Hanambam was probably definitely more rational than mystical. But the reason I brought this other quote is to show like, you know, it's hard, it's hard to label him as only that and not having the capacity for mystical experiences because we don't know. Maybe Hanambam, when he prayed, he meditated for sure. We know from the More, maybe he had these mystical experiences without, you know, needing to do all the mechanisms of Kabbalah. Okay, good. Yeah, great. Okay, great. So just to continue with Alan Watts. Right. Uh, there's no destination necessarily that needs to arrive at, but it is best understood by analogy with music, because music as an art form is essentially playful. We say you play the piano. You don't work the piano. Right? You're playing the piano. So when somebody's playing the piano, you might ask them, you might say, oh, is this uh, is this a serious thing you're doing? Well, it's not serious. If you miss one of the notes, is it the end of the world? Does something happen? No. But it's sincere. You want to play a nice sonata. You want to play a nice uh, symphony, whatever you're playing. And I, something so interesting is, is uh, Oliver Sacks, right? Um, doesn't he say this idea of that or he had this one patient with a certain kind of neurological damage, right? Musicophilia. But this was even in, um, what's the other? The man who mistook his wife for a hat. And for some reason, he was able to function at a higher level when listening to music. And when he had music in the context of whatever you needed to do, he was able to do it. And he was able to see the world better. And it had something to do with the part of the brain that it was, you know, activating that wasn't being activated without the music. That to me is unbelievable. It tells us that music, it's a part of us that's so deep. And, you know, I gave a speech a few weeks, like a month and a half ago about string theory. And string theory basically says, and it's not proven, but it's saying that all these microscopic and subatomic particles are made of little tiny circular rubber band strings. And they're all vibrating at different frequencies. And based on these different frequencies that they're vibrating at, they form the different types of quarks and the different types of bosons. So the very physical structure of the universe, maybe according to this theory, 
might be music. It might be based on different theory, different frequencies and different ways that these strings are dancing together. So it might actually literally be true. To me, that's the most unbelievable thing to learn how to dance along with the, with the music of the universe. And to me, I try to meditate on that. I try to dissolve myself into strings. You might look at me differently the next time you see me. Um, but I try to dissolve myself into strings and, and become one with and continuous with all the strings of the universe. Yeah, you know, try that out at home, but be careful. You know, don't, don't yell at me if anything goes wrong. Um, Mike, I got to jump off. I got to call. No problem. ID was a pleasure. Really. I love you. Thanks, guys. I love you. Alamak. Okay, bye bye. Right. So, so you don't work the piano, you play the piano, right? Why? Music differs from, say, travel. When you travel, you are trying to get somewhere. In music, though, one doesn't make the end of the composition the point of the composition. If that were so, the best conductors would be those who played fastest. And there would be composers who only wrote finales. People who would go to a concert just to hear one crackling chord. Dumb. Right. We don't just go to the, the music hall to hear dumb because that's the end. We, we go because we want to hear the whole thing. But we don't want to hear the whole thing for the sake of the end. We want to hear the whole thing because of the sake of the whole thing itself. And that's why, like my friend always tells me, music hits to the heart of reality better than any words that we're doing. I'm not good at music, so that's why I'm not currently playing anything for you. My thing that I know how to do, which is in a way secondary to the music, and of course you need both in your life, is trying to use words to, to make you realize how limited words are. And, you know, like uh, some people like to say, instead of listening only to the words, you can listen to the silence between the words, because that's where real truth lies. I love that idea. So he says, um, same way with dancing. You don't aim at a particular spot in the room because that's where you will arrive. The whole point of the dancing is the dance. But we don't see that as something brought by our education into conduct. We have a system of schooling, which gives a completely different impression. It's all graded. And what we do is put the child into the corridor of this grade system with, with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. Right. And you go to kindergarten and there, that's a great thing because when you finish that, you get to first grade and then come on, first grade leads to second grade and so on. And then you get out of grade school and you got high school and it's revving up and the thing is coming. And then you're going to, on to college. And you've got graduate school. And when you're through with graduate school, and you got to join the world. And then you get into some racket while you're, you know, uh, selling insurance or something. And they've got that quota that you just got to make. And all that time, that thing is coming, right? It's coming. It's coming. That great thing, the success you're working for. And then you wake up one day about 40 years old. And you say, my God, I've arrived. I'm there. And you don't feel very different from what you've always felt. Look at the people who live to retire, to put those savings away. And then when they're 65, they don't have energy left. They're more or less impotent. And they go and rot in some old people's senior, senior citizens community because we simply cheated ourselves the whole way down the line. Because we thought of life by analogy with a journey, with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end. And the thing was to get that thing at the end success or whatever it is, or maybe heaven after you're dead. But we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing. And you were supposed to sing or dance with the music that was being played. Right? To me, this is exactly what it's all about. This is the way that I would want to express mindfulness to somebody. 
Because mindfulness is the ability to take any scenario, any situation, no matter what storyline, no matter what meaning externally you're giving that scenario. Mindfulness right here, right now, in this very moment, is the ability to take a second and just be with what is. And there's a certain, you know, in the mystical experience, there's an ecstasy to realizing the dancing vibrations of all the molecules everywhere. And it's not about, you know, it's not about the, the storyline that you're telling yourself. Albert Mazzari says Pixar's soul. Exactly. One of my favorite movies that I've ever read, watched in my entire life. I cried from that movie. I really did. It was, it was so profound that, that it's exactly right, Albert. The moment that we see the person on the subway car, I'll never forget the scene in that movie. And that little second where he sees the, the sunlight peeking through the two skyscrapers in Manhattan. And he gets that, that moment of realization, like, ah. And he looks back at his whole life, and then the moment he ate a donut for a second, it, obviously we want to add meaning and we want to have different levels that we live at, and that's beautiful. But mindfulness is the ability to add some of this just for its own sake. Beauty. Because we always ask, what's the meaning? What's the meaning? It's always ego-centered. It's always, how does it relate to me? But the point is, it's not all about you. And then once you realize that and you start dissolving into these particles that are dancing along with the rest of the symphony of the universe, just literally vibrationally, that's when you really got it. And I'm not saying to go abandon your obligations. I'm not saying to stop finding meaning in life. Definitely not. But to acknowledge that part of being a whole human is the ability to dwell on two levels at once, like we mentioned last week, right? Alan Watts would call that a really swinging human being. He says, a person who could on the one hand live in total and complete equanimity on one level, right? And then on another level, he's able to sit across uh, from a patient who's suffering and cry with them and, you know, have his heart open with them and be fully present all the time, knowing that really everything's perfect. Everything is fine. But at the same time, being absolutely heartbroken, it's this tension. It's the ability to live with paradox. And that's what the mystics have been telling us for thousands of years. Um, so that's the Alan Watts piece. If you have any questions or comments, feel free. Otherwise, we'll, we'll move on to the next source. Any, any, uh, anything to say? I think I'm taking the words out of your mouth in a way. I'm not, I'm not allowing you because I'm telling you that words don't matter. And yet I keep talking, which is just the humor you know, of it all. You know, there's, there's a truth. You know what's funny about, about this whole, you know, dichotomy between being obsessive about achieving and, you know, if you think about, let's say, uh, stereotypical but you know let's say high school you know you have the uh, the nerds or the you know the jocks uh, either way you know they're practicing and they're achieving and they're taking tests and they're you know even even if uh, if they're they're trying to become more social they're trying to get you know uh, the, you know be in the in crowd and and you know get with the right girl the right boy or whatever right so there's and then if you think of like fast times at Ridgemont High or something you know then you got the potheads and you know they don't care, you know, they're just like, hey, man, you know, it's all good. And, you know, it's just really funny how, like, we're learning now after all of our education, medical school, you know, <laughs> after spending all this time, that maybe, you know, there was a lesson to learn from, you know, just taking a chill and just right. appreciating something, maybe a little bit of a chemical alteration, <laughs> you know, of our mind. That's right. <laughs> You know, it's amazing. You know that story of uh, there's like the CEO, rich man, multimillionaire. Of course, he brings his whole family, let's say, to Costa Rica. 
and he he's there and he's like you know touring with his family he goes into the beach and he his family is in one spot he kind of goes for a walk on his own and while on on this walk he goes he gets to the edge of the pier and he sees one of the local uh, fishermen from Costa Rica fishing and he tells the fisherman oh what's doing como esta and he says pura vida of course that's what they say in Costa Rica and he he tells him oh so what's what's your deal what's your business like he's like oh i'm a fisherman you know i get the fish i go i sell it in the market and that's it he's like why don't you you know expand your business and he gives him all these ideas you could you could hire this one and they'll work for you and then you expand da, 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 da. he's like and then what and he's like all right and then you you know i don't know you retire you're a millionaire and you get to spend time on the beach fishing and he's like i do that already and that's the point is that whatever you're you think you need you think you need it so badly then the partner the the children the job whatever it is you know I, right now i'm applying to, to residency and it's crazy and i think i need it and if i don't get it what's going to be the world's going to end and everything's going to blow up and smoke and who knows what and the mystics have this idea of humor you look at some of the pictures of some of these gurus and without fail they have this smirk on their face and just you know alan watts has a picture of one of these guys literally in the in the front of his house or well, he's not alive anymore when he when he had when he was alive he had a picture of one of these guys in his house and he would walk in and just see this guy smirking at him because the whole way through once a person becomes enlightened they've seen through the game and they know that everybody is just God playing the part like, oh, I'm just Jojo Tao. Like, all right, come off it, Jojo. We know who you are. You know, enough with this, this God stuff. I mean, sorry, enough with this Jojo Tao stuff. You know, we know who you really are. And of course, it's not the, of course, it's not the ego. It's the, the true essence of who you are. Because like we mentioned last time, the self is an illusion. And you can't talk about self without all the entire environment. And in time, you're not 1995 till now, you're Big Bang till now. So you're literally the whole totality of space-time. But you think you're just you. You think you're just little old you. But the point is that once you've had a certain experience and you're able to look out at people, you have this smirk and everything seems humorous because you realize that in a way, there's a game that's being played here between you know, good and evil and good must win. And there's black and there's white and there's yin and there's yang. And there's always this tension but once you've kind of transcended that dualistic plane, you're able to find the humor once you come back into this plane and you say to yourself, like, I know everything is really fine. Really, at, at its core, everything is fine. I think it's not fine. And that's also fine. Even the feeling that you are an ego is part of the perfection of it all. Even the feeling I shouldn't be doing this and maybe this stuff was something. I don't know what, the, what did they think when I said it. That's all perfect, too. Everything's fine. And it's kind of like leaning back into that experience and like my words now I'm trying, it's very hard to convey these things, but it's kind of like a, a certain mind state to have where there are no wrong thoughts. There are no wrong feelings. There are no wrong actions. So just relax. And that's meditation and that's mindfulness. Any questions or comments before we move on? It's yeah. field web. Field web? This guy web. Guy, oh, Alan Watts? Watts. Watts, yes. Oh, what's his field? It's a great question. I mean, he he's really, I would say he's a philosopher in a lot of ways. Uh, I think he was a philosophy professor in UC Berkeley, UCLA, one of those. He lived in Sausalito, lived in, you know, Big Sur. I think they have like a, an area there like dedicated to him. So I would love to visit there one day. But it's, yeah, it's an unbelievable, uh, he's an unbelievable person. And he, he has these very profound, I'll send you some recordings. Anybody who's interested, I think they're so interesting. And 
yeah, really had a big impact on, on my life and the way that I see the world now, you know, um, any other, anybody else? All right. So we'll go on to William James, William James, of course, the father of modern psychology. And he wrote a lot of mystical works and he, he wrote a lot of different things about mysticism. We mentioned in the first class, he says that the mystical experience is fundamentally ineffable. It's something that you can never put into words. And it's something that is, you know, extremely profound, of course, but um, he had these four different fundamentals to it. Uh, so I'll just read you this quote. One may say truly, I think, that personal religious experience has its roots and center in mystical states of consciousness. Right. So he's connecting directly religious experience with mysticism. Or as any decent meditation teacher will tell you, clinging to oceanic experiences, and we'll mention what Freud mentions about this idea of the oceanic, clinging to oceanic experiences will hinder your progress quite as much as clinging to anything else. Right. So on the one hand, could you, you define that? Say it again. Could you define that? I don't know what he's talking about. Sure. So oceanic experiences are the, the, the feeling like when you step out onto the beach, you look at the totality of the ocean. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a term coined by Freud. And we're going to see a, a quote soon from Freud about what he thinks about the oceanic. Um, if you want to take a look, we'll, we'll get to it, hopefully. Um, but it's this, it's really part of the mystical experience is this feeling of being larger than yourself. Sometimes you look at a beautiful vista on a mountaintop or an ocean or at outer space and you just get the, the chills and you're like, oh my God, I forgot how small I am. And that really, after all, was the problem, wasn't it? The problem was you thought you were just little old me. And all it took was just looking out at everything and saying, oh my God, I forgot that, that I'm just a tiny piece and it's not about me. And some people take that as a very sad thing. Like, oh, it's not about me, little old me. And, but it's like, don't you realize the relief of that? That there's nothing riding on it. Just have fun. Just go out there, do your best. And do whatever, whatever happens, happens. The fate of the universe does not depend on your existence. Because you know what? Your existence is, as a separate self is an illusion anyway. So you have all of eternity to work that out. It's fine. There's no rush here. You know, and time is an illusion anyway. You know, so just this experience of, of feeling larger than yourself. And what he's saying here is that, okay, you want to have this mystical experience. And then, you know, after the ecstasy, the laundry says, uh, says Jack Cornfield, he has a book title named that it was a great book. And what does that mean? You, you have this ecstasy, you have these unbelievable peak experiences, and then you got to do the laundry. Well, that's ordinary. Well, the key is to have enlightenment through it all. But the problem is, you might start clinging now, like, oh, I got to have another one of those expansive experiences. And he's like, oh, yeah, if you, if you cling to more of those oceanic mystical experiences, that's going to hinder your progress just as much as anything else in terms of becoming more enlightened. Because you, you have to just be present with what is and not try to force anything in the future or worry about the past. You have to just be present with what is and let it take you. And that's why, you know, the idea of grace in a lot of ways, because you can't lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. You know, you literally can't. So it's not, it's, it, it's almost like when you, when one has this mystical experience, it feels like something coming outside of you. And that's the real you, that outside. And that's the interesting thing. Um, this is not to say that, I hope that answers your question, doc. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm getting uh, more of a sense as to what it, what it means. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. 
So hopefully it'll become more elucidated. Let's see. This is not to say that mystical experience has nothing to do with feelings, James continues. Rather, it is a state both of feeling and of knowledge, of wonder and intellectual engagement, right? You see here that there's this duality again. There's this paradox of both elements mattering. The two faculties must be deployed when weighing any insight, right? So if you completely abandon your intellect and like kind of shoo it away, and you say, okay, I'm only going to do the things based on how they feel. You're not going to be a very good person. You're not, and you're probably not going to find enlightenment because it's not about one or the other. It's about balancing both. What comes, James explains, must be sifted and tested and run the gauntlet of confrontation with the total context of experience. What a quote. That you need to really employ every element of your human experience in order to really fully engage the mystical state. You can't abandon your intellect and you can't abandon your feelings. You need to be in touch with both. I think that's beautiful. You have to be balanced. Mystical states can therefore be assessed for their truth value, but how? Not, James explains, in the way advocated by the medical materialists, those who, for whom mysticism signifies nothing but suggested and imitated hypnoid states on an intellectual basis of superstition and a corporeal one of degeneration and hysteria, right? So they are very reductionistic. We have a lot of people like that, especially today. And they just want to reduce everything. It's nothing but, or it's only just, and Rabbi Sachs says, anytime you hear somebody say, it's only just, it's only just X, immediately you know that they're, they're just not telling the whole story. Because like we said, everything is both perspectives at once. Um, in mystic states, he writes, we both become one with the capital A absolute and we become aware of our oneness, right? So you become aware that you are it in a way. You're it. You are what is. You're not just this. You don't end with the boundary of your skin because without you being here, you wouldn't know that there's a thing over there, right? And without that thing over there, you wouldn't be able to know that you're here. Right, so the quintessential... Uh, idea of that right so um in short there are two characteristic outcomes optimism and monism this he believes is amply demonstrated in copious accounts of mystical experience right so unbelievably it has this consequence often of being leading us back into this reality and seeing everything as in a more optimistic light generally speaking they move from a less into a more as from a smallness into a vastness and at the same time, as from an unrest to a rest, we feel them as reconciling, unifying states. And it's, it's amazing, this idea of oneness. And we, we keep, I keep mentioning Aldous Huxley every week. He wrote this book, uh, Doors of Perception, which is an amazing book. I listened to that when I was, walk, I was walking on the beach in Morocco. What a place to listen to Doors of Perception. But Aldous Huxley taking mescaline, which is the active ingredient in peyote in the Native American cacti. Um, he also writes a book called The Perennial Philosophy. And he says the fact that all these different traditions converged on this idea of oneness of it all, whether that be Sufi mystics or Indian mystics or Buddhists or Kabbalists or Christian mystics, they all talk about this oneness. There's got to be something to it. There's got to be some element of universal human truth to that, similar to the way Jonathan Haidt talked about intuitions that we share globally. 
All right. So these are, this is the idea of a unifying state. And, and Harambam tries to talk about this in the Moreh, right? It's a oneness, but not one as in not two, but one, not that it could be split. In, and it's so difficult to even speak about because that's the point is your intellect is limited at a certain point. Not to reject the intellect, but to say, thank you, intellect. You took me so far. I got it from here. And allow yourself to just relax. So it's funny. I actually, I'll just give a brief uh, you know, comment about this. Somebody asked me recently, what does faith mean to me? One of my good friends on Shabbat asked me this. The idea of belief, right? First of all, you want to distinguish that from faith. Belief comes from the word leaf, I think, in ancient, uh, one of these ancient languages. And, it's, and it has something to do with like wishing. I wish something will happen. Faith, though, is the ability to fully let go in the moment. And that's the key. In the moment. When you're saying, God, I have faith that you will do this for me. Is that really faith? No, that's not faith. That's hoping. There's nothing wrong with hoping. Don't, don't get me wrong. I hope a lot. I hope I get the job, you know, next, uh, next year. I really hope so. But real faith happens when I stop telling God what to do for me. When I, in this moment, let go. And it happens in each and every moment. And you can't divorce it from the moment. So real faith is fully letting go and being present in this moment without insisting on anything in the next moment and without thinking about the last moment. That's faith. It's as simple as that. And it has everything to do with mindfulness. It's the, the, the full letting go in the moment. And that's what we should all strive for during meditation is just to let go. Like, like they say in AA, let go and let God. There's a lot of power to that statement. So what does James say? Of course, such perspective, perspectival shifts could be diluted. The experience may be nothing but a subjective way of feeling things, a mood of fancy. James also considers what he calls lower mysticisms, a category that includes states of consciousness that are the product of chemical, not spiritual stimulation. An example is alcohol. The sway of alcohol over mankind is unquestionably due to its power to stimulate the mystical faculties of human nature, usually crushed to earth by the cold facts and dry criticisms of the sober hour. Right. So he's saying alcohol is not the highest level of mystical experience. It might help you with that, but it, it's, it, it's something that, that could maybe facilitate it, but it's not really the highest. Nonetheless, there is for James such a thing as genuine mystical experience, providing a pointer to a reality that is more likely true than false, true, not false. Right. Uh, the monism and optimism. Right. Monism is the oneness of everything. And optimism, that is their product, have such a demonstrably positive impact upon those who have them. And James concludes, that which produces effects within another reality must be termed a reality itself. Right? So because the mystical experience seeps into this reality and it has its own period of time in which it was experienced, it must be, you know, true in a way. Because let's say you have 99% of your time you have one type of experience and then 1% of the time you have another type of experience. At the end of the day, the truth is the experience. So just book what? So because of quantity, you're going to judge one better than the other. Both were true. Both happened. Both were experienced for a fraction of experience, experiential time. So is a dream true? I don't really know how to put it, but in a way, yeah, that was your experience. It's this is also true we're experiencing now, but so is some kind of mystical experience. It's just an interesting way of thinking about what really is reality and how do we judge it? Do we judge it based on quantity or just based on the fact that we experienced it? You experienced it. Um, Okay.
feel like you're not doing yourself favors by comparing dreams. You're right. I'm not. Dreams. We know our dreams are limited to to our personal experiences and aren't being experienced by other people. Aren't mystical experiences in a way also though? I mean, you're you're right. Um, but like you were what's, saying, what's he I, saying? I can't hear. Uh, Sorry. Here, yeah. There's common themes to the mystical stories. <laughs> Um, I was just saying, I, I thought Michael was doing himself a disservice by comparing the mystical experiences being realities to um, to dreams being realities. I don't think so. But uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, from what we're from what we're we've been discussing so far, um, have common themes that are universally experienced that are um, uh, maybe I no, would say I, I would say I, like I more true than a dream, which is um, only individually experienced. Good, sure. Yeah, um, that's a big difference for yeah. sure. But a dream is a reflection of of your of your you know of your consciousness, and it's and it's true in that you know you experience it. Number one and number two, it's a byproduct of your neurologic processes, which which became arose out of you and your experience with the world, all of which are true and real. So a dream therefore is true, but a mystical experience is a little different because like you said, you can talk about it with other people and they can relate to it. Mm -hmm. And it could even be shared to some extent, like a religion or a spiritual type of, you know. Yeah. But the network. interesting thing is that the peak of the mystical experience, a lot of people, the way they talk about it is the nothingness of it. You realize that it's all nothing, which is funny because it's not a something. And any something that you did experience was based on your personal experience. So the commonality is the nothingness that we all experience together. And the oneness, you could call, you know, yesh me ayin. What is the ayin? The Kabbalists will say, well, God was that ayin because if there was a yesh after the ayin, the ayin must have been God because God is eternal. And it all, you know, this idea of Ketet, I think, at the top of, I'm learning a little bit more Kabbalah as the days go on. That Ketet, I think, is like the highest of all the... Um, the Sefirot. Sefirot, thank you. And no uh, you see how much I know about Kabbalah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and Ketet is the nothingness. This is what Rav Shagar says. And, that, and because the Ketet is the nothingness, it's the highest level you could get to. And that's really the oneness is when you realize that you see how my words are limited. But... Dream is very similar to the mystical experience in that everything leading up to that nothingness was a something because it was in your brain. Just like a dream was a something because it was in your brain. But you're right about the absolute nothingness. Yeah, it really is. I, I've had dreams where I, I don't have crazy dreams sometimes, especially lucid dreams, which are my favorite. And those have really happened with God's grace because I wish I could control those more. But, you know, sometimes I've sat down and meditated in one of my dreams when I had a lucid dream. And I, I, I felt this like this nothingness. I don't really remember it so well, but I remember waking up and being like, holy cow. I don't know what's going on, but that was unbelievable. You know, and like that's the kind of experience. But I, I definitely hear what you're saying. Um, so significant value in the way he frames the subject, particularly his recognition that experiences an interaction of both feeling and cognition. He seeks to assess mysticism's veracity. <laughs> not merely on account of its luminousness, he also takes account of its reasonableness, judged by its fit with, within a well-articulated and philosophically defensible system of beliefs. And he stresses its overall moral consequences of the individual, the quality known as saintliness. So isn't that interesting? 
part of the faith, I think, in letting go is not just the fear that you're going to get hurt, but also the fear like, oh, but what if I, if I let go of everything? And what's to stop me from going out and doing whatever the heck I please and hurting people and taking from people and worse than that. Well, part of this is that's where I really think the leap of faith comes from. You want to talk about a leap of faith? I think it happens in this very moment. And I think it's the ability to fully let go and trust that even if I let go, I won't go and do evil. And the amazing thing is this is time after time the response to the mystical experience is not that a person says, oh, now I have the keys to the game and I'm going to go and scurry around and screw people over. That's never the reaction of true enlightenment. The reaction of true enlightenment is what there is now is love. All there is now is for me to give is love because there is no me. And therefore, all there really is is love. And there's, there's no way for me to look inwards and say, oh, what about the self-love? And of course, I think you should have self-love from a psychological point, point of view, from a 21st century point of view. But philosophically, I think this idea of love of the self is an illusion because there is no self and all there is to love is the other. And that's this, you know, saintliness, I think. Um, hey, so just, um, yes. you know, I'm just thinking about what you're saying. I mean, I think the biggest risk with mysticism is, is certainly not, you know, criminal behavior or selfish behavior as in like taking from other people or hurting people. I mean, that, I don't think we see that. It's just not something that, that we see, but turning inward does have some negative consequences towards uh, the fabric of society from the perspective of, you know, being a husband, being a provider, you know, supporting the, the synagogue, whatever, you know, whatever mm -hmm. people, you know, have roles to play in society. Oftentimes, you know, you're a son, you're a, you're a father and, you know, you have obligations. And when you start to detach yourself from, you know, putting so much pressure on yourself and, and, you know, becoming, you know, mystical. I mean, you know how it is. I don't have to explain too deeply. The, the problem is you then, and things are not so important. And what does it all mean? And then you could end up just uh, becoming more of like a stoic or uh, like a, a mystic, as in like someone who, you know, goes off on a mountain and just meditates all day, not a saint. Because when you say a saint, that sounds someone like someone who's doing chesed, which is not really the same thing. Exactly. So there's in the Eastern tradition, in Buddhism specifically, they have this idea of a Pratyega Buddha versus a Bodhisattva. A Pratyega Buddha literally means a private Buddha, a person who goes out, gains enlightenment and meditates on their own and does not, you know, re-engage with society. And they don't really look so favorably on him or maybe that's his karma. I'm not sure exactly what they say, but the real you know, Gever in their eyes is the Bodhisattva. It's the person who gains enlightenment, but then takes a vow and says that he will never, you know, fully enter into the bliss and ecstasy of it all forever until every single soul is brought into enlightenment. And these Bodhisattvas are people who take their enlightenment and use it to better society. And to me, that's really at the cornerstone of all of this discussion is that none of this is to make you want to not help people the point of it is to realize that the result of this is that you're going to be full of love and want to help people and there does take a level of trust in that because what if you know i have a wife and kids and i then i get enlightened and now i don't care about them well then you're not really enlightened from a certain perspective and the point is to balance all those obligations at once and that's part of being a, a total human 
Um, so now we're, we're up to, but there is a balance, you know, and there yeah. is a peril. I mean, I don't, I, you're giving it a short, uh, like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> yeah, but it, but it re- it's real. And, and there are right. really people who, you know, get into, you know, drugs and alcohol as an example, mm-hmm. but sure. yeah, it's not really the same thing, but, you know, at least get, get too into things, uh, whatever it is, you know, and then they, they neglect, you know, other, other aspects of their life. And it's, we're judging them you know, by saying, oh, that's bad, but they may not judge it that way, <laughs> you know, from their Absolutely. perspective, they're, they're achieving their, their goals. And, you know, the, the family can find food elsewhere or whatever, you know, <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and, you know, it, it is, there's a danger to this. So I think, you know, anything powerful, if, if, you know, not taken in the right context and not built upon certain foundations. And again, another thing of balance is balancing tradition and progress. So, right. You know, having and that's study. why, the, you know, that's why the rabbis didn't want us studying Kabbalah, yep. you know, for example, something like that, you know. Yep. And alongside the psychedelic revolution, look what the hippies did, because it wasn't within the framework of any tradition. It was just, oh, love and everything. And, you know, who am I to judge anybody? But at the same time, it had some negative effects in society. And if only it would have been done within the context of some tradition, like you look at the way the Native Americans do their peyote rituals and they have very specific rules and you have to be sitting up in the same spot the whole time for a certain amount of hours and it's like unbelievable and that's the point is that these things need to be done very carefully within a certain framework and when not done in that way who knows what could happen um it's a great point so now freud uh where we, we will end in a few minutes um anybody have anywhere pressing to go of course you can leave you know i'm not you're not a prisoner i can imagine that the oceanic feeling could become connected with religion later on that feeling of oneness with the universe which is was which is its ideational content sounds very like a first attempt at the consolations of religion like another way taken by the ego of denying the dangers it sees threatening it in the external world. So let's parse this uh phrase by phrase i can imagine that the oceanic feeling could become connected with religion later on right so this experience of the mystical Freud is saying it must be that religion is connected. That feeling of oneness with the universe, which is its ideational content, sounds very like a first attempt at the consolations of religion, like another way taken by the ego of denying the dangers. He's saying he can see why people could connect or will end up connected. Yes, yes, exactly. Doesn't have to be. But he's saying that he sees it as the ego, as a defense mechanism, denying the dangers it sees, threatening it in the external world. So he really reduces it to just the defense mechanism, and we'll see even more of what he says. To Freud, this feeling is a fragment of infantile consciousness when the infant begins to differentiate himself from his human and non-human environment. In his opinion, there is not a strong enough need for it to be the source of all religion's energy. Freud does not deny that this feeling may occur in people and offers a psychoanalytical explanation. Right, So he's saying that this whole idea of it is just an infantile experience. And I'll continue reading uh, this next quote does an even better job than I would do. Um, so he doesn't deny that this feeling may occur in, in people and offers like analytical explanation. So he says it's, it happens, but it's infantile. Let's see what he says. Freud argues, we'll end with this. Freud argues that the oceanic feeling, if it exists, is the preserved primitive ego feeling from infancy. The primitive ego feeling precedes the creation of the ego and exists up until the mother ceases breastfeeding. Isn't that interesting? The first resistance that you have towards the world is when you suck milk and there's no milk. 
Prior to this, the infant is regularly breastfed in response to its crying and has no concept that the breast does not belong to it. Right? The breast seems like it's another organ of the infant. Isn't that amazing? Before you formed your ego, you thought breast and self were one. Therefore, the infant has no concept of a self or rather considers the breast to be part of itself. Freud argues that those experiencing an oceanic feeling as an adult are actually experiencing a preserved primitive ego feeling. The ego, in contrast, comes into existence when the breast is taken away and involves the infant's recognition that it is separate from the mother's breast and therefore that, that other persons exist. Freud argues that it would not necessarily contradict psychoanalytical theory for this primary ego feeling to coexist along with the ego in some people, right? Some mystical people. He says, okay, we'll allow it. The main argument for this is that psychoanalytical theory holds that all thoughts are preserved in a conservation of psychic energy. And therefore the oceanic feeling described as oneness with the world or a limitlessness is simply a description of the feeling the infant has before it learns there are other persons in the world. On the contrary, the oceanic feeling, the sense of wonder leads people to a humble awareness of truth with some sense of the human ego's relative size and importance in the whole universe. This is a feeling that can only be experienced in totality and not without conscious awareness and certainty. Right? So I just want to reread the end of this. The oceanic feeling described as a oneness with the world or limitlessness is simply a description of the feeling the infant has, right? So we said that already. But on the contrary, the oceanic feeling, the sense of wonder, right? Everything that we care about leads people to a humble awareness of truth. So it has benefits, some sense of the ego's smallness, right? And this is this feeling can only be experienced in totality and not without conscious awareness and certainty. So he reduces it to some degree. And I'll give him the same response I would give to, to the atheist today who would want to reduce all of reality to just particles. I would say, again, you're not looking at it from two perspectives. You're not realizing that there's different ways of analyzing things and different ways of speaking about things. And you can never actually state positively what is. So from one perspective, Freud, you're right. It evolved. This ability to experience the self as larger than the self had to have evolved if we're here now talking about it. But that doesn't mean that there's no truth to it in a more objective sense. It just means that, that just like the human brain evolved, does that mean the human brain doesn't have the ability to detect certain truths in the world? So again, we don't want to swing the pendulum too far to one side or to another. And the idea that comes to mind is balance, that the, the cornerstone of all the spirituality stuff is the ability to balance everything that we're talking about all at once. And I challenge you, part of mindfulness, just go about your daily business and see, can I be engaged in the world while also maintaining a sense of inner peace? And of course, it's something to cultivate, but... You think, oh, how am I going to work to that? I got to get somewhere. And now you're going in circles. It happens right now. And you're perfect at it in any moment. So you're enlightened in any moment. It's a little secret I'll let you in on. You're already enlightened, say, all of these mystics. What you think you're looking for, you already have. And that's why you don't, you know why you can't, you can't find it? You already have it. So there's nothing else to teach. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing... Um, I like this, uh, the Freud, uh, you know, I don't buy half of what he's saying, but the, <laughs> the gist of it is very interesting in that, you know, when you start off, you don't know what the boundaries are between you and, and the external world, you know, as an infant, 
There is no such thing as boundaries. Everything's just like kind of limitless. And, you know, yeah, I'm sure you're aware that your mother is something, but you don't necessarily know it's not you or, or, or it's separate and you don't know what the separation is. Uh, you know, it's probably all very nebulous and, and not clearly defined to an infant mind. And then we need to learn, you know, the end of our extent and the beginning of another extent in order to function in, in the world. You know, the world's a dangerous place, um, you know, and, and you have to learn that to respect boundaries. And but it is artificial at the same time. And then it's interesting how in order to achieve enlightenment, you have to then unlearn yep. <laughs> what you've learned right. earlier on. I think it was Picasso who said it took me five years to learn how to paint like Rembrandt and a lifetime to learn how to paint like a child. One of my favorite, <laughs> I like Mar loves to quote that. I think it's one of my favorite uh, quotes because the Cartesian thing. Oh yeah. Descartes. What does he say? His whole thing is about unlearning everything he's learned. Amazing. To, to be able to start at like a blank slate. Unconditioning like himself. And as Ramdas says, becoming nobody. Right? Even though he has another book, Being Ramdas. I know you don't like that. But he also has another book, Becoming Nobody. And that's the whole thing. We grow up and everyone tells you, you're really someone. You're really someone special. You're like a snowflake. You're so special. Well, I think that's beautiful. I really do think that every person is a celebration of, of God. You are a celebration. You are a celebration of God. This tissue box is a celebration of God. Of course, I, don't, I wouldn't equate the two. But at the same time, if you think you are more special than another person, all right, that's where I draw the line. Right? So if you want to say, I'm God, I have no problem with that. As long as you say he's God too. And she's God. And we're all God. Because it's just a semantic argument at that point. And please don't take that soundbite. Every week I say things that are <laughs> dig my grave a little deeper. So if you're looking for these soundbites, I must have made it. And thank God, you know, but uh, it's been nice uh, while it lasted. Um, so thank you, everybody, for coming. And uh, Hazakubaru. Fantastic. Daka was awesome. awesome. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Have take a good care. night. Oh, I love you, Mike. Love you, brother. That was great.